Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. We're continuing uh, this morning in our series uh, titled Saints in Society. It's titled Saints in Society because right away in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he, addressed, he addresses the saints. This is, this is a popular New Testament term that is used for Christians. Christian is a noun, not an adjective. It describes a people or a person, and so does saints. Saints isn't, uh, is not a title that you uh, ascribe to. It's not something you arrive at. It's not something you work really hard um, to get and then you become a saint. You become a saint by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then upon becoming a saint, then, then, then we see what it looks like for saints to live inside of society, what it looks like for us to live out of that identity that we are given by God's grace, and what it looks like for saints to impact culture, not be just impacted by culture. And so that's what we're looking at. That's where we're at in the letter to the Corinthians. Uh, The first four chapters, we looked at the saints' unity and how important it is for saints to, to be unified and ultimately being unified around the message of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now, over the past uh, few weeks, we've looked at the saints' morality in chapters 5 and 6. We're going to wrap up morality this week, uh, looking at what it looks like for the saints to have an objective morality, and that objective morality being God's word. Next week, we're going to look at, for the next two weeks, our church's vision, so we can have a clear understanding of what that is as we go into our family meeting. It'd be a great time for you guys to come into that. When we come back from that, we're going to continue on in our series, Saints and Society, but we're going to be looking at marriage, sex, and singleness as we dive in deep into uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that's where we're going. That's where we're headed as a church. We invite you to keep coming along with us, and like I said during announcements, I say it now. If, If this is new to you, if Christianity is new to you, or if you were just investigating the the claims of Christianity. If you don't call yourself a believer, a saint, a Christian, we are honored to have you here. We love having you here. We love that you're here visiting with us. We love that you're investigating. We love that you are uh, seeing what the claims of of God's word says and what it looks like to be a Christian that you want to know to some degree who Jesus is. And that's who we've built our lives upon. Upon Christ upon the gospel and upon his word. So welcome, and we want this to be a safe place for you to, to dive in. With that being said, you're probably going to disagree with what, a lot of what I have to say today. Um, because I'm preaching from the word of God, and, and what we see is the word of God is our objective standard of morality. And we're looking at uh, sexual ethics today. And so where, where we draw a, a, a understanding of, of sexual ethics and, and what sexual morality is, is not from the culture, but from the word. And a lot of things have been read into the Word from our culture. We want to read out of the Word of what God's Word has to say and speak to sexual ethics. This is called exegesis, reading something out from the text. And so that's what we want to do. So I invite you, feel free to disagree with me. Um, plenty of people do. You, you will not be the first one, but just know that, that, that our standard for our church is that this is the authoritative Word of God. And so we want to preach it and preach it faithfully. So we'll pray for that and we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for your word, that your word is good, that you are good, that you speak, that you have spoken to us through your word. I pray right now you would slow us down, calm us down from the uh, the busyness of our lives, uh, from where our minds are so scattered and focused on everything else. I pray that you would help us now through the power of your spirit to focus on your word. 
to hear from you, to know you, to know what your word says, what it teaches, what it tells us about you and your character, Father, and what you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ. And through faith in him, who that makes us and what it looks like as saints to live out of this new nature, this new identity given. I pray that where our lives don't line up, Father, that you would correct us. I pray that we would humbly submit to the uh, authority of your word, not just appeal to our own emotions. I pray if there's something in your word that disagrees with us, that, that, that we could see that the problem is not with you, Father, but we could look deep inside and reflect on where there's something wrong with us. And I pray that we would see your word, know your word, and, and, and value and treasure your word because we want to know and treasure and value you. Holy Spirit, help me and help us. I pray that Jesus is exalted this morning and that I become small. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20 is where we'll be wrapping up today on the section for morality. <clears throat> I'll read it and then we'll dive in. All things are lawful for me, but, but, all things, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. It's the word of God. The main point today is the saints belong to Christ. The saints belong to Christ. You could look at other words that that can mean. The saints are purchased by Christ. The saints are set free by Christ. The, the, the saints are ransomed are redeemed by Christ, but we want to look at this message, and I want you to leave understanding what it is to belong to Christ, and what it means for us to belong to Christ. So the saints belong to Christ. That is our main point. That's what we're going to be looking at. We have to understand, too, that, that, that there was a lot of cultural influence going on in first century Corinth, and there's a lot of cultural influence going on with us today as well. And so these things um, that are going on inside of Corinth have made their way back to Paul, who previously was in Corinth for about a year and a half and then left. And so some people from the, the church in Corinth have sent him likely a letter reporting to him, hey, here's what's going on. And then Paul responds with a letter. And so Paul's letter would have arrived and, and they likely would have read the letter, what, what we have in front of us, 1 Corinthians, in, 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 in one setting. And what we can see in that is there was a lot of cultural influence, much like there is in the Pacific Northwest, but much like there is in our culture today. There's a lot of things that influence the way that we think. Their influence, the influence of their culture was strong. The influence of our culture is strong too. And I would say there's a lot of stuff that we don't even see the cultural influence in. 
There's a lot of stuff that we've just adopted a narrative from our culture that, that, that's being imposed to us or, 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 or that in a sense it's being told to us without us even knowing that we've adopted it. Let me just give one example of this. In the United States prior to 1910, young adults engaged in the practice of calling. All right? Calling. A man asked if he could call on a woman. This is not original to me. I'm, I'm reading from two different authors here. This meant visiting and getting to know her in her home surrounded by her family, okay? Sometime after World War I, a new system arose that was loosely termed going out, okay? From front porch to back seat, this is, this is the book title, Courtship in the 20th Century, Beth Bailey sums up what this change meant. The foremost change being a shift in power from the woman to the man. When calling, the man entered the unfamiliar setting in which the woman was at ease and controlled the time, tone, and agenda of their time together. In going out, the man gained the power to determine the setting, tone, and agenda. We like going out, and we want to push for stuff without even realizing a lot of stuff that we're pushing on is something that our culture has just adopted and has come our way. What are some other changes from this? The second change was a shift in focus from the family to the couple. With calling, the man first entered the woman's family and the family had a great deal of control over whom its young adults were seeing and spending time with, okay? With going out, however, the couple gets to know one another with little or no family input. Families have far less information and less opportunity to counsel regarding what is going on inside of the relationship. A third change was the shift in emphasis from uh, 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 assessing character to having a good time. Instead of the qualities that make a person a good mate, like faithfulness, steadiness, honesty, and responsibility, the desirable qualities became superficial ones like attractiveness, sexual chemistry, and social status. Okay? So I don't want to idealize uh, uh, calling because calling was also birthed out of something that came before it. Okay? And, and so we don't want to uh, idealize these. Um, cultural influences that, that come at us, but a lot of times we have these things that, that, that we're doing and operating in without even seeing cultural's influence on us. And these things come our way, they impact us, and we don't see it. So like I said, I don't want to go, we, we, we need to go back to calling, because that was birthed out of something too. If we want to go back, even biblically, we would go back to arranged marriages, okay? And so, if you guys want, we can fire that up right now. I'll just, yeah, amen? Just start picking them, we'll just make it happen. Wedding's right here this morning, so... But the, the reason in, 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 in the biblical context, it's more focused on what, what it looks like for a man to love his bride and what it looks like for the, for the bride to love her husband, okay? And we, we have this hyper-focus on it, are they a match, are they compatible, and all this stuff, okay? The Bible's focus is, is on marriage, so we don't have this uh, extensive literature in regard to dating, okay? But I'm just saying that to say that we've adopted stuff without even knowing that we've adopted. We are influenced more than we think that we are influenced, and my hope and prayer is that we'd understand that our culture is influencing the way that we see and view sex, the way that we see and view and understand sex. From a young age on, our culture is speaking a narrative and a story to us that we oftentimes adopt without even realizing. And so I want to challenge some of that with the Word of God, push back on some of that and see what some of that is. And so let's look at verse 12 as we dive in. So remember, the saints belong to Christ. <clears throat> verse 12, we came out of last week seeing uh, Paul defining what is sexually immoral this week, uh, it starts off kind of interesting. It, it, it looks as though, is, is Paul contradicting what he said last week? Is the word contradicting itself? Look, look, it says, all things are lawful for me. So is it just carte blanche to do whatever I want? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. 
All, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What, what is going on? We have to understand a grammatical hermeneutic, which means this. Our reading of the text, we have to understand grammar. If you look and see, there are quotations around all things are lawful for me. The reason why those quotations are there is because Paul is quoting what they would have said to him. So the letter that arrived to Paul, Paul would have heard these words probably from one of them. As in, hey, this is what's being said in Corinth right now. People are going around saying, all things are lawful for me. It's all good. So Paul's actually not saying all things are lawful. He's actually just quoting what they were saying. So look, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Paul, Paul responds back with, with what they're saying. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And then it says, all things are lawful for me. Again, that's what they would have been saying. But, but, but Paul responds back with sound logic. I, I will not be dominated by anything. What does that mean? Logic is this. That for the people that are saying, all things are lawful for me. This is my body. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to adhere to anything else. I have full freedom. I have full ability to exercise my own authority over every area of my life. Paul is responding back and saying that if you are actually dominated by anything in your life, you're actually not a free person. You are just enslaved to whatever that is. Whatever, whatever you cannot say no to, the pills, the drugs, the alcohol, the food, whatever it is that dominates you and dominates your life and you can't say no to that, that is not the marks of a free person. Our inability to say no to food, to say no to stuff, isn't marked by someone who's truly free. Actually, it's marked by someone who's enslaved to those things. And honestly, oftentimes, just enslaved to ourselves. And so, Paul's pushing back to say, is, is it really freedom that you're claiming when you're absolutely dominated by something? Paul would say, no, it's not. And so what Paul's going to start setting up is that we actually belong to someone. We're, we're, we're actually not our own, which is offensive language, especially in our culture, that we're not our own. See in verse 13, he goes on. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. Okay? That's, that's weird. Like that's a weird saying. We, we, we arrive at that and go, that's weird. Uh, we, are, we, are, we are centuries removed from whatever they meant by this saying that was obviously somewhat popular inside of Corinth. We have to understand that, that language changes, that language evolves, all right? So words just change, like sick, you know? Sick doesn't mean that your kids are dying. It just means something's cool, which I know that's a little outdated, like hot. Um, hot no longer means don't touch. It means, you know, attractive. Um, um, bro, that, that thing is fire. Um, that is not run. That means it's cool. Uh, I'm just helping you out if you're over 40. So I had to look this stuff up. So... I'm just, I'm explaining how language changed. So, uh, send it or a full send means that you're going to launch your snowmobile over something without a helmet on. <laughs> Looks really unsafe. Uh, a goat, if you guys aren't familiar, a goat is greatest of all time. Like, she's a goat. So, um, boss has nothing to do with uh, superiority or authority in our culture. Um, and then uh, we'll end with this one, period which means like period, but it's like emphasized, okay? Uh, these are all ways that our language and our, and, and has, has developed, okay? Has evolved. And so when we get to something like this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we, we have to know this, that this might have been a common phrase or saying to them now, and, and, and we are thousands of years removed from this, but we also have to look at the context of what's going on all around this text is it is all about sexual morality. And so I believe we can draw strong conclusions that what this saying has to do with is that, look what it says, God will destroy both one and the other is, is this, is 
My body's just physical. It's nothing more than that. And, and here's the thing. Sex, for me, is like a good steak. It satisfies the stomach, and when a man's hungry, a man's going to need to get some food. That's kind of what this... We can draw strong conclusions with everything else going on with their pride and their arrogance and the way they're talking about sex, their, their small view that they have of sex, that that's what it's like. It's just like being hungry. It's a physical desire. It's a physical appetite. When I need it, I will go after it and I will get it. Paul's pushing back. He's pushing back because, again, we would say, is, 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 is that truly freedom? No, that's actually birthed out of what's called Gnosticism. Okay? So being a Gnostic means this. That there was a God of the Old Testament that made a mistake and he created uh, uh, um, physical things, and physical things are evil, but the God of the New Testament is all spiritual, okay? So anything in the physical world that has physical matter is evil, and one day it's all going to be gone away with. So therefore, it does not matter what we do with our physical bodies, including giving them sexually to whoever we want. This comes out of what's called Gnosticism. And it's saying that, that, that physically it doesn't matter what we do because physically our bodies are evil. And Paul's pushing back against that so hard. We see it in the next verse when it says, verse 14, that God raised the Lord and he will also raise us in his power. But he says right before that, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. He tells us what the body is for, what the purpose of sex is for. He's unpacking this stuff for us. This word for sexual immorality is porneia which is where we get our English word pornography. But all illicit sex outside of the covenant of marriage is what Paul is saying. Sexual, this, this, this is sexual immorality. And this is not what your body is for. I believe that our culture and what we push on people is this. Is that it's your body and it's morally oppressive to tell people what they can and can't do with their body. And you, some people internally right now are like, yeah, amen. It's your body. You do whatever you want with your body. And here's the thing. I don't like rules is what would follow up. And then the reality is, is that we, we, we develop all these rules about social equality, social justice, all good things, all biblical things. And then we develop all these rules around these things about how we can create a utopia with all of these rules while saying we don't want the rule of God. What we want you to have are our rules that we've developed on how life will function better. And then we will hold you to those rules. And if you don't meet those rules, you will be someone who is morally oppressive. That is Phariseeism in the 21st century. That is what that is. Because what the Pharisees did is they showed up and said, these are the rules you need to follow to be right with God. These are all the things you need to do. And now we have all these rules that we're saying, this is what you need to do. You need to have sexual freedom. You need to do and live with your body as you please and all this stuff. These are rules that our culture is saying of what it looks like to truly be free. Is that what it looks like to truly be free? Is that what true freedom looks like? Is to adopt something like that? I think those are the questions we have to start wrestling with today because I would say this, is that we're all in bondage to something. We're all slaves to something. It's just, what are we slaves to? What are we in bondage to? And how do we view our bodies? How do we view sex? As it says again in verse 13, look here, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Our bodies are meant for the Lord and the Lord for our bodies. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Our physical bodies have meaning. Jesus was raised in a physical body. He ate physical fish in his resurrected physical body. We will be raised with physical bodies. Our physical bodies and what we do with them has meaning and has purpose. What are we telling young men and women? 
the meaning and the purpose of sex is or what is our understanding of sexual immorality when every show on TV today makes it normalized that it's okay to have sex before marriage and that pumps out that sort of message. That this is a perfectly normal thing to do. It's your body. Do what you want with it. That's what it is to be free. I'll quote Keller and say this. Is that what freedom looks like? I believe we have a slide for this. That snap tells me we do. <clears throat> I just don't know where my, what's out on my note. So, quote this. Freedom isn't just, look at this. Freedom isn't just unconstrained choices without boundaries, but rather finding the kinds of boundaries that liberate us to be fully alive. I've used this before. It's like a fish going, I'm, ti I'm tired of the boundaries of the ocean. I want to go live and be free. We would understand that a fish does that, it dies, right? Because God's put parameters to where you can actually experience life and life to the fullest. And God didn't set up his law to be oppressive. He set it up because he loves humans. He loves mankind. He created them in his image. He says, this is what will lead to human flourishing. And so Paul's pushing back on the Corinthians because they've adopted a form of sex that is not in line with how God's structured and how God's laid it out. Okay? Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is not members like a Costco membership or a golf club membership. It's saying, do you not know that you are the arms and limbs of Christ? Shall I then take the arms and limbs of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That's what he says. Never. Why is that such a big deal? Because he's, he's saying, you, you are bound to Christ. The most pure truth about you, the truest thing about you is that you are bound to Christ, that you belong to Christ, that Christ belongs to you, that you are members of Him, you are attached to Him, you are bound in a covenantal love to Christ. It would be just as offensive if all of a sudden I looked at our wedding photos from um, Allie and I's wedding day and I noticed that most of the photos were cut out from our wedding day of her and I. And I went to her and I said, Allie, where are all the photos of you? And she says, I've been, I've been giving those to another man. I would go, man, that is something sacred, right? And, and she came to me and said, Rick, where's, where, where's your wedding ring? And I said, I've given that to another woman to wear. We would say, that doesn't make sense. That is sacred for our marriage. And we would say, for those that are bound in Christ, bonded to Christ, anchored in Christ, that it doesn't make sense to give ourselves away to others in a way that the Word of God says is dishonorable. Because we would never do that to a prostitute. Why the language of prostitute? Because there was a, there, there was a temple here. And, and there was a temple goddess that, that was worshipped. And one of the ways you could worship the temple goddess in Corinth was you could go and you could have sex with one of the temple prostitutes. Tell me that's not a man-made religion. And, and so you could go and do this, and, and this is going to get you right with that goddess. Okay? And so this became a normal practice for the people in Corinthians to do something like this. And, and, and to leave their wives and to leave their families and go have sex with one of these temple prostitutes. And Paul's just saying, never. But, 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 but notice, he's not taking them to their marriage with their spouse. Notice he's not taking them to who they are in a covenant relationship with here on this earth. He's taking them to who they are in Christ. That's what he does from the beginning of the letter. He always takes us back to our identity. He's like, you are not seeing the gravity of how beautiful it is that you are joined in a deep, covenantal, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Why would you give yourself like this to someone else? Why would you persist in sexual immorality? It doesn't make sense. You have the greatest thing ever in your identity of, with Christ. You know what I believe this comes from? 
is it comes from a low view of sex, for sure, but it also comes from a high view of sexual gratification and, and, and again, a low view of covenant. So it comes from a low view of sex outside of the only thing sex being is a high view of getting my sexual gratification, and then I think it comes from a low view of an understanding of covenant because uh, the beauty of covenant in our culture I think is something that we lose and that's been lost. Because what we say is, is what you can do, and I touched on this last week, and we're going to touch on it more whenever we get to sex, is, is it, it is a common cultural phrase to say that you should test drive a car, right? Because by test driving a car and having sex before marriage, what you can do is see at that point if the person is someone you would actually want to commit yourself to. And I would say this, that sort of vulnerability is not supposed to exist according to God's word, outside of marriage. And I would say that vulnerability without a covenant will cause harm. You can quote me on that. Vulnerability without a covenant will cause harm. I know this personally. I know this personally. I'm not talking about it in theory. I'm, I, I'm talking about it personally. I know that vulnerability without a covenant will cause harm, and here's the reason why. is because a covenant is this beautiful thing to where it says in, in, inside of a marriage that, that, that I am covenanting to you. I'm making a commitment to you that I will love you, that I will pursue you, that I will serve you, that I will seek you, even if you do not do these things in return. A covenant is a sacred thing in marriage, but, but it's supposed to be, and what we're supposed to look at is our covenant relationship that we have with God through and in Christ Jesus, where Jesus comes in, makes a covenant with us through his blood, binding us to him, and then says this, in this relationship with him, we can know him, but he can know the deepest parts of us. We can be known in such a way to where we can be fully exposed and know that he will never abandon us. And the most harmful thing is for someone to come and, uh, uh, for someone to come with an arrival and an understanding and say this, you know what, I don't think you're working out for me. Yeah, there's, there, there, there's just a lot wrong. You seem like you got a lot of stuff to work on. And then what a man or woman has said to the other person is that um, you are good enough to meet my sexual desires, but you are too broken for me to engage on any other level than that. That's what our culture is like. Yeah, let's do that. I will use you, and I will meet all of my physical desires, but I will not commit to the mess that maybe you might be or that's found out beyond that. And so a low view of covenant is not seeing how beautiful it is to make a bond and a covenant with someone that says, I'm bound to you, I'm not leaving you. Even if you fail in all these areas, I'm, I'm in this. And I believe our culture needs to push back and say this covenant is a beautiful thing. This sort of vulnerability only exists and is supposed to exist inside of marriage where there's this sacred covenant where you can give yourself like that to someone in a deep personal way where you can be known deeply known and trust they're not walking out on you. Verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Okay? What's going on here? There's a join. You are joined to the Lord become, be, uh, and we become one spirit with him. But there's this oneness. It's drawing from this Genesis language, 
When we go back to the beginning of time, we see this marriage with Adam and Eve, and the two will become one flesh. There is something, please listen, there, the, the, there is something going on inside of sex that is far beyond just a physical component. We are joined to someone both spiritually and emotionally. The Hebrew word that's oftentimes uh, used for this is dode, which, which implies an intermingling or an intertwining of souls, so much so that when you have sex with someone, and, and, and you experience that, that your souls are intertwined and intermingled. That's not just a physical thing. There's a oneness that takes place that is only designed to have that sort of vulnerability in the context of marriage. That's the oneness that Paul's saying. That's the picture of what sex is. That's the sort of oneness that he's saying. You are joined, you, you, you have this oneness with Christ. I believe that oftentimes and we, we did a whole series on this, that, that the act of sexual immorality and, and living for sex is driven by a deeper desire. And it's probably comfort, approval, control, or power. And so sometimes what we do is we give ourselves in this vulnerable state to someone because we long for their approval. And we want them to approve of us. And so we'll use sex as a mean to gain something else that's going on deeper inside of us, which is we need approval. Or we will use sex to control someone to make sure they stay in a relationship with us. Or we only look for sex because Jesus can't satisfy us, and so we need sex too. Or it's used for power. And only in the oneness of Christ do we see that we have all the approval we need. We don't have to control or uh, uh, make maneuvers or manipulate God for him to love us. That we have all the satisfaction we need. This is what we have through our oneness and our, our union that we have with Christ. Verse 18. Flee, which is a language that we see with Potiphar um, from uh, Joseph in the Genesis account. Flee from sexual immorality. Escape. Get out of there. Run. Run from it. Every other sin, look at this, a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does it mean? It sounds complex, but I believe it is simple. To sin against your own body. This is different from every other sin that a person commits because there is a sacredness, there is a oneness that happens inside of sex that doesn't happen with any other sin that you commit. There's just this one form of sin where your body and your soul intertwines in a way that is only designed in the way God has designed it for the covenant of marriage. So Paul says, flee. But then he goes on to say, and here's where we're going to get offensive, okay, um, if we haven't arrived, is that flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Look, or do you not know that your body is a temple? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Look, you are not your own. Okay? We do not like to hear that. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Think about that for just a minute with me. The literal dwelling place of God is the saints. The God of the universe, the God who created everything, dwells inside of us. That's where he's pleased to dwell. He dwells within us. God, God sets up shop inside of, of believers. We have full access to God at all times. God, the Holy Spirit. The temple is a big thing. 
if you read the Old Testament, what you can actually see is, is you can, uh, I, I don't know the exact address, but, um, but it's in Second uh, Chronicles. But I said last week in the sermon that I think there's going to be this resurgence that's going to happen. I don't know if we'll see it in our time where we move away from culture just saying we're going to do whatever we want to us coming back to saying, what does God's word say? The reason I say is because that's happened throughout the Bible. We saw it with the Israelites is they would stray far from God. They built up these idols. They did all this false worship. And then we see it with King Josiah. He has a guy um, who comes to him who's a priest whose name is um, Hilkiah. And, and, and Hilkiah goes, hey, I found the scroll. I found the Torah. I found the word of God. And then another guy who is a secretary named Shaphan says, let me read it to you, Josiah. So Shaphan reads it. Josiah's response, guess what he does? He rips his robe. He tears it. A sign of contrition, a, a, a sign of, oh my goodness, what have we done? How far have we strayed? And I think that's what happens, is the culture sees we have gone so far from what the Word of God has said and how he's designed sex and how he set up sex to actually give life that now he's tearing his robes going, oh, 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 oh my goodness, we, we, we have to do something. We have to change. We have to push back. We have to get back to what the Word of God says. And so they do. What's their first response? Cleansing the temple. We see this with Hezekiah too. They cleanse the temple. When Jesus shows up, what does he do? What makes him angry? He has righteous anger. What makes him angry? The temple's been used as a place that was supposed to be a place where you could dwell with God, be with God, experience God, and it's become a place of sin to defile God. So he cleanses the temple. Our bodies are that place where God says, I want to dwell in you and with you. I want to be the place you can experience me want to be the residing place. And I want that to be for the church. And then let's wrap up with this language here. You are not your own. If you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The most offensive thing that we can say to someone, probably in, now, uh, in our culture, is you are not our own. Your body's not your own. You don't just get to do what you want with it. Because for the saint who's been purchased by Christ, it says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. That means this, that your, your body does not belong to you. We're going to look at next uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 7 how our bodies belong to our spouse, both ways, man to woman, woman to man, and we're, we're, we're going to get to that. But for now, what we have to see is this text ends with, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. What in the world does that mean? It means this, that we've accrued a debt from God that we can't afford to pay. It's not a small little debt as, as, as though we've racked up some blockbuster fee or something like that. It is a massive debt. If, if, if you punch just an average Joe in the face, it might not be that big of a deal. If, if you punch a police officer in the face, it's going to be a bigger deal. If you punch a state official in the face, a bigger deal. President, leaders, all the way up, it's going to become a bigger deal. When you sin against the holy God, it's a big deal. And it's not a debt that we can pay off through some moral, religious, good works or best efforts. It's a debt that has been accrued that we are incapable of paying off. We have a credit score that's not like 300. We have one that's like negative a billion, okay? So that's where we arrive. No one arrives up with a credit score and says, here, God, let me give you my credit score now. Accept me. We arrive saying we are bankrupt and we cannot pay our debt. And Jesus steps in and says, I have lived the perfect life and I will pay the ransom and the debt that is owed to God for your injustice. I will pay the debt in full with my life with my death on the cross, I will absorb the wrath, I will absorb the punishment, and I will provide the payment that's required to a holy and good and just God. 
And we have to understand this. The gospel, the beauty of it, is it's not like a credit card where it has limits and we've maxed out our limit. We're like, we've hit our sin limit. I, I, I will say this boldly. We have, from Jesus, a work that was done and completed on the cross that is infinite, meaning this, that, 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 that there is no limit to the magnitude of his grace. His grace is infinite because he is infinite. So there are no bounds to God's grace. It is boundless. It is limitless. And that's the kind of grace that he has. He's like, I've paid your debt in full, past, present, and future. There are no bounds. There's nothing you've done. I've paid it. I purchased you. How? Through my life. And if God was ever going to change his mind about us or about his love for us, wouldn't he have done it on the cross when his son suffered in our place, paying our debt? And he did not. We are not our own. The saints belong to Jesus because he purchased us. It reminds us of Hosea and Gomer, right? Gomer ran and, 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 and ran after other men, and Hosea pursued her. In the Bible, we see silver being, being exchanged for slavery. Joseph was sold into slavery with 30 pieces of silver. So was Jesus into bondage. But in the case of Hosea and Gomer, he actually buys her. He ransoms her. He purchases her and says, I want to take you, and I want you to be my own. And that's what Christ says. He says, I want you to belong to me. Every, like one-third of Corinth would have had, would have understood this because they were enslaved. Slavery then meant you had a debt you couldn't pay off. And so this wouldn't have happened, but someone would have come in and said, I paid your debt for you. And that's what Christ has done. Saying, now, what kind of master do you have? You have a master that's proven his love, that's shown his love, that's displayed his love. That is a, co that, that is a covenant commitment that cannot be broken. He will not stop loving the saints. So let me <clears throat> close out with three things we can do from this to glorify God with our body. I first want to say this. I would want my daughters to know this. I would want you to know this. Is I saw a pastor once who felt called to preach because someone gave up, stood up and gave a sermon about sexual purity. And it disgusted him and it disgusted me. But they took a rose and they plucked out all the petals from the rose. Talking about sexual morality. And then at the end of it, after they plucked out all the petals, they held up the stem and said, who would want this? And the pastor said, he's the president of our network, Jesus Christ wants that. Jesus Christ wants that. And I would say to anyone in here this morning who feels sexually impure or like, like you don't have that to offer, I would say the purity of Christ that he gives you through his purchasing, he gives you his purity. He's purchased righteousness for you. He gives that to you. That's better than any purity that you can arrive at through your own world, through your own decisions, through your own moral choices. He gives you his purity. That's what you can bring into a marriage is the purity of Christ that he redeems and rescues all people with. We have to objectively talk through some of this. Here's what this means to glorify God with our bodies. Is that said, all of us are enslaved to something. What does our master look like? This is what I do. Maybe this is helpful to you guys. When I'm tempted to sin and when I'm tempted to adopt a view of sexual immorality that is not the way that God's designed in his word, here's what I do. I talk to myself, okay? And, and, and I, I, I literally do this. Is I will say, Rick, you're not a slave to sin anymore. It wanted nothing good for you. It was an oppressive, cruel master who just wanted to take life from you. You are now a slave to Christ and his righteousness, who's proven his love to you. How? Through the cross. 
What has sin done to prove its love? What has Christ done to prove its love? Now, if Jesus says that this way is better, why should I trust him? If no other reason, the cross. If Jesus says this way is actually going to lead to happiness and to a full life and to joyfulness, then why would I trust this master over this master? And I, I objectively talk to myself like this throughout my day, and I challenge this. Here's, here's how I end. Rick, someone's lying, and someone's telling the truth. Is God lying or sin lying? Someone's saying that you need this, and this is what will satisfy you, and Christ says, I've proven my love for you, and I have all that you need to be satisfied. We have to objectively talk to ourselves and know that there is an enemy who lies to us. Number two, sexual sin is selfish at its core because it says that I want something from you and I want my sexual desires met. Inside of marriage, there's the sexual pleasure of sin, great gift. We're talking about outside. And here's what I would say to that. Is one way we can battle this and glorify God with our bodies is sexual sin at its core selfish? Then do something for someone else, very practically speaking. I got this from Ronnie. This is not uh, from me. But when you are tempted to sexual sin, when you are tempted to pornography, when you are tempted to uh, sin sexually, if at its core it's selfish, then do something for someone else. Love them, serve them, send them a text, call people up, ask how you can pray for them, drop them off a coffee, do something like that very simply to move beyond yourself and, and selfishly just what you want. Number three, we have to understand the effects that our sin has on our corporate body. What does it say to a new Christian when they see you someone they look up to and respect, doing this. What does it say? But also, quoting Nathan on too, what does it say about how we actually view our brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it actually say? And, and, and if, if, if we say, I want sex for you outside of the way that God has said is honorable, and we don't treat that person with respect, why would we treat our other brothers and sisters with respect? And last, I would say this, is that we have to push back against our culture's view of this is a good thing, and, and, and you need to be free. You need to be free with your body to say that actually true freedom is what Christ has given in his word. Psalm 1, Joshua 1, Psalm 119, basically the whole thing. Matthew 5, 8 is blessed or happy are the pure in heart. Romans 6 says this. We'll end with this verse. But thanks be to God. The worship team wants to come up. You guys can start coming up. Thanks be to God. I think we have a verse for this. That you who once who were once slaves to sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Look, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. That's what you are a slave of. You belong to Christ and his righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you were presented, your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members to slaves as righteousness, leading to sanctification. The difference with Jesus is this, is he didn't get rid of his law. He said, I'll fulfill it because you can't. But he did something wonderfully, powerfully amazing. He said, I'll give you my spirit now to empower you to live out and obey the law that's actually going to lead to an abundant life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that we would know and understand what it is to live out according to your word what sexual purity looks like and to see it as a good thing, not to see it as an oppressive thing, to see that our bodies belong to you, Jesus, and that's actually a good thing. We love you. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.